What I'd like to talk about today is that we are several weeks away from the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. The Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread will be here shortly. And we're going to have another year, another opportunity to go through the biblical holy days in their sequence. These are called the Feasts of the Lord. They're not the Feasts of Moses. They're not the Feasts of Mr. Armstrong. They're called in the Bible the Feasts of the Lord. I'd like you to think about some things as we talk about the holy days and especially the spring holy days today. And ask yourselves, why do we do these things? Why do we do these things? Why do we go through this annual exercise? Is it just a routine? And we do it because God says to do it, so we do it. But why do we do these things? What are we going to learn this year? What will you learn? And what will I learn? You know, some of us have kept the holy days for 40, 50 years. Some of you will keep the spring holy days for the first time this year. But what will you learn? How will you be different when you go through the Passover this year and you come out the other side of the Days of Unleavened Bread? What will change? Will anything change? How will you change? I'd like to ask two questions as we begin the sermon, and I want to focus then on these two questions. Why do we observe the holy days, especially the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread? And the second question is, why do we have so many trials just before the Passover? Why do we have so many trials just before the Passover? I want you to think about those things. If we focus on the first question, why do we observe the holy days, and especially the Passover and the days of unleavened bread? Are we blindly following the ideas of Herbert Armstrong? Are we just going through a routine? You know, if they're part of the old custom, excuse me, a part of the old covenant, didn't Jesus do away with all that? And what's wrong with keeping Christmas and Easter if we do it sincerely? Why do we keep the Passover and the days of unleavened bread? Why do we keep the holy days? I want to read you just a little bit out of a book entitled The Feasts of the Lord. We don't publish this. (laughs) Don't even know the authors. The authors have somewhat of a Jewish background, but I believe that they are probably uh, uh, Messianic uh, Christians or something like that. They believe in Jesus Christ. But I wanted you to just see how others look at these days and realize, you know, we kind of look at them the same way to a degree. It says people observe holidays. Now, he calls them holidays as opposed to holy days. The Bible calls them holy days. The world has all kind of different holidays, uh, memories of political events, birthdays of great people, national heroes. Thousands of holidays are observed annually. 
But then getting into the holy days, he said, in marked contrast, the eternal God instituted only seven holidays or holy days. In contrast to the world that has hundreds of holidays, different kinds, the eternal God, the God of creation, instituted only seven holy days. And while it's not inappropriate for men to establish days of special celebration, their significance, worldly holidays, cannot be compared to the importance of the seven holy days instituted by God. These people understand. These seven holy days are discussed throughout the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is we will see today. However, only in one place, the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, are all seven holy days mentioned. It says the seven holy days are called the feasts of the Lord. That expression indicates these holy days are God's holy days. You're not mine, not Mr. Armstrong's, not, not somebody else's. They belong to him. They are quite literally the feasts of the Lord, and only on his terms and at his invitation can men and women participate in them. You, know, you never kept the holy days until God called you, for the most part, called you into contact with his church where those holy days were being observed. I grew up in Protestant churches, kept Christmas, kept Easter very sincerely. Never understood. Couldn't even pronounce the names of some of the, of the holy days. But this is the observation they make. Only on God's terms and by his invitation can people participate in the holy days and enter into their benefits enter into their benefits. It's not talking about burdens. The Hebrew word translated feast means appointed times. The idea is that the sequence and timings of each of these feasts have been carefully orchestrated by God. Yeah, that is an incredible mouthful. God designed these holy days, placed them in specific times through the year, and gave them very specific meanings that God has opened your mind to understand. He mentions they're called holy convocations or uh, meetings for holy purposes to review the meanings of these days. You know, the holy convocation, the word convocation means a commanded assembly. You don't just come here, well, I, I love the Lord and I think I'm going to be nice to him and I'm going to come. No. <laughs> He says, you're to be here. I'm to be here. And then the book kind of jumps the tracks a little bit. It says, um, looking at specific things about these feasts, first, these seven feasts of the Lord were given to the Hebrew nation. The Jewish people are God's covenant people. Well, in Leviticus 23, they're called the feasts, or they're, they're called the... Uh, I'm not going to do a... <clears throat> Batavia from the sound of music. Let's turn to the scripture. <laughs> you know, he says the good book says, well, then he, he fumbles around and can't figure out what he says. <laughs> but if we go to Leviticus 23, 
God doesn't call them the feast of the Jews. He didn't give them just to the feast. He didn't give them just to the Jews. He gave them to the house of Israel, to the children of Israel. Leviticus 23 and verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. The children of Israel were the children of Jacob. He had 12 sons. Judah was one of those sons. Reuben was another son. Gad and Issachar were other sons. And from those sons have come the nations of Israel today. The covenant was made with Abraham. You can read that in Genesis 49. And the covenant that was made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then to the sons of Jacob. You can read what those covenant promises were in Genesis 49. He says to the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, I am going to make you a company of nations and the great nation, a nation and a company of nations. God did not forget the covenant he made with Abraham. Otherwise, you and I would not be sitting here in the United States, in Charlotte, in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, because God did not forget the promise he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You can read through Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, where God made a covenant with the children of Israel through Moses. And he said, I am going to bless you. I'm choosing you to be my people, a special people, a light and an example to the world. And if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. And if you disobey, you are going to be punished. You're going to reap what you sow. The nation of Israel and the nation of Judah anciently were blessed by God, especially under David and Solomon. But then they turned away. They forgot the feasts, forgot the Sabbath, began worshiping idols. And the northern nation of Israel went into captivity around 700 B.C. The nation of Judah went into captivity. And then we read in the book of Daniel, 2,520 years later, God would take away those punishments and give the ultimate blessings. And when you look at the history of America, And you look at the history of Britain. It was right around 1800 that things began to explode. This little island off the coast of Europe began picking up countries accidentally almost around the world. It became an empire that spread the whole way around the world. Now, they didn't do everything right. But God said, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be punished for a period of time. And then I'm going to give those ultimate blessings because I promised it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants. The United States kind of burst on the scene about 1800 and spread the whole way across the continent and has become the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. We have enjoyed those blessings. And any of you that have traveled outside the United States, just go across the border over into Mexico, into South America, 
into the Middle East, across Africa, they don't share the blessings that we have here. God did not forget the promises, the covenant that he made with Abraham and his descendants. But what our people are forgetting today is that our ancestors made an agreement with God. That's what a covenant is. The covenant says if you obey, you're going to be blessed. If you disobey, you're going to reap the consequences. God has not forgotten that agreement. And we appear to be heading into a period of time that are going to be very challenging and very difficult. You know, we read in the news here a couple of weeks ago how southeastern Australia was suffering from fires, fire storms, flames 100 feet high. You know, they've got a lot of eucalyptus trees down there. Those eucalyptus trees contain gums and resins that when the fire came through there, they literally exploded because these are volatile gases and volatile chemicals in those trees. And just, poof! Things exploded. They said it was a week in hell, a week in hell in Australia. Now, what we haven't read much about is a couple of weeks later on a Friday evening, there were three earthquakes in Melbourne, moderately heavy. Those earthquakes were the night before the biggest social event in Australia occurred, which was the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras parade in Sydney. 300,000 people lined the streets to watch these people display their perverted values. Sydney and Melbourne are the home of the two biggest homosexual communities in Australia. Most of the population in Australia lives in the southeastern part of the country. During this period of time, the Australians have legalized gay marriages and things like that. They've literally promoted this type of lifestyle. And I got onto a website and they were saying, anybody that is homophobic down here needs medical treatment. Needs medical treatment. And they're going to go after people that resist what they're trying to do. Australia has also been in the grips of one of the biggest droughts in the history of their country. These firestorms were like nothing that's ever happened down there. See, we are breaking the covenant with God. We're turning our back on the guidelines that God has given us. We need to understand that some people don't understand what these covenants are all about. And as we keep these holy days... We need to appreciate why God gave us these holy days. The holy days are called the feasts of the Lord here in Leviticus 23. It talks about the Sabbath. It talks about, uh, in verse 4, these are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, commanded assemblies, that you shall proclaim in their appointed times. On the 14th day of the month, at twilight in the evening, is the Lord's Passover. And then following that are the days of unleavened bread, where it said you must eat unleavened bread. 
first day and the last day are holy convocations. We're not to do any work. You can read in Exodus chapter 12 about the Passover lamb, which was symbolic of Jesus Christ. They were to select a lamb that was without blemish, picturing the coming Messiah, the coming Jesus Christ. They were to put leavening out of their homes for seven days. That's interesting. The Jews do this. I think it's probably more of a ritual. What I've read is that they hide bits of leaven around the house so that their kids can go find it. I was reading something recently where this lady says, I put the leaven in different places, then I go and try and find it. Uh, These could be teaching experiences. There's certain positive aspects to that. I know I have spent time in the past probably uh, cleaning out the car and all this other stuff. You know, generally when I do, I find money under the seat. (laughs) So it's not a bad exercise. Uh, you know, sometimes women, too, can spend so much time cleaning the house that we're so worn out by the time we come to Passover, we don't have time to examine ourselves. Now, if that's what we've done in the past, hopefully we can learn from that. That doesn't mean we stop doing it. It's just that we need to, you know, realign our perspectives. We had a young lady came into the church in one of the areas where I pastored, and she called one afternoon as we got close to, to Passover, and she was panicked. She said, my husband has a library of a couple thousand books. And somebody told me, you know, he might have been eating a cookie when he was reading one of those books, and I'd better go through each one of those books page by page to get all the leavening out. I said, it's not the Feast of Unleavened Books. (laughs) It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know, but this this was the concept, and I just had to tell her that's that's not what it's all about. You go through your kitchen basically and look under the cushions in the living room where you sit and eat while you're watching television. But those are physical exercises. What we need to focus on are the spiritual things, but not throw the others away. You know, the world keeps Easter about this time. And what is the focus at Easter? Well, Christ was resurrected, but you know, I need a new bonnet this year. And I need a new dress, and the kids want to play with the Easter eggs. That's not what it's all about. We've been called to observe the feast that God set, the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Why do we keep the feast? Because we're stuck in the Old Testament? Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to go through this relatively quickly. This is a review, but we we need to understand. We've got some people here that are new, and you'll have people asking you questions. Why does your church keep these Old Testament holy days? Well, we're following the example of Jesus Christ. That's why. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse um, 41, talks about Jesus' boyhood experiences. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Passover. Every year. This is how Jesus Christ was raised. You know, I think the Catholic Church says, give us a child until he's six years old and always be a Catholic. Because they have been trained, they've been educated to live a certain way of life. But his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Passover. When he was 12 years old, 
they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom. When they had finished the days, and this would have included the days of unleavened bread, they returned and the boy Jesus lingered in Jerusalem. His parents went off and apparently they said, well, he's probably with one of the relatives or whatever. And uh, sometime later, going back to uh, Nazareth, I think it was about 75 miles or so, so it probably took him a couple of days to get back. It may have been later that evening when they were getting ready for dinner. Where's Jesus? Did you see him? He's not here. Uh Uh-oh! Where is he? When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, verse 45. So it was that after three days they found him. You figure maybe a day up, maybe a day back, another day looking around. Uh, Sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening and asking them questions, and all who heard him were astonished at his understanding. Where did he get that understanding? Probably in part from his parents. What they had taught him. How they had educated him. The examples they set for him. And when they saw him, the parents, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, why have you done this? Why didn't you come with us? Uh, Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I'm here for a reason. I'm sure at that point Mary realized, yes, his birth was quite a special experience. It was very unusual. And then she had to process that. Jesus was raised to keep the Passover in the days of unleavened bread. If you turn to Luke chapter 22. Here was Jesus at the end of his life. And this is why we keep the Passover in the days of unleavened bread. Because Jesus did those things with his disciples. Chapter 22, verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Luke uses the phrases interchangeably here for Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. Drop down to verse 13. So they went, several of the disciples, and found it as he said, and they prepared the Passover. Now beginning in verse 14. When the hour had come, they sat down. He sat down, Jesus did, with the Uh, Twelve apostles, and he said to them, With fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will not uh, no longer eat of it. This is apparently referring to the meal that they had before. I will no longer eat of it or have this wine again with you. We're not going to share a glass of wine until we're together again in the kingdom of God. He was looking forward to doing this in the coming kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, uh, Take this, divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink... Excuse me, I jumped ahead there. Verse 19, He took bread and and broke it, gave it to them, saying, This is my body. This broken bread is symbolic of what's going to happen to me which is given for you, I'm going to suffer for you, to die for your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So here's the instructions for the New Testament Passover. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, is this new agreement in my blood. I'm going to give my life for you. 
And if you accept my sacrifice for your sins, I'm going to give you eternal life. That was not part of the old covenant. I'm going to give you the opportunity of eternal life. I'm going to grant you access to my spirit. This was not part of the old covenant. It's part of the new covenant. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you. So Jesus was keeping the Passover with his disciples. And some say, well, that he was still under the old covenant. So, you know, that really doesn't count for us today. But, you know, if we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul was dealing with some morality issues or we say immorality issues in the church at Corinth. And when you read a little bit about Corinth, it's no wonder why these things were happening. And it appears as you read down through these first eight verses, the context of Paul's letter is around the time of the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread because he's talking about these things. In verse 1, he says, It's actually reported there is sexual immorality among you, and it's stuff that even the Gentiles don't do. In verse 2, he says, You're puffed up. You're arrogant. Again, this is a play on the circumstance. When you're full of leaven, full of sin, you're puffed up. So Paul is using this terminology. You're puffed up and you've not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Down in verse 4, in the name of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, uh, along with my spirit, with the power of Jesus Christ, deliver this person, put him out of the church. Deliver this one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's not going to be uncomfortable being labeled a certain thing and then put out of the church. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, your glorying is not good. They were tolerating it. They were accepting it. They were going on with it. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, now here comes Paul, this play on words during the time of the days of unleavened bread. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven. Get rid of these things. But he's also talking to them. Get rid of the attitudes that don't belong. Get rid of the wrong attitudes. Get rid of the wrong actions. Paul is playing on this this concept. Purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. I think the American Standard Bible says, just as in fact you are unleavened. See, they were unleavened spiritually, excuse me, physically. They'd put leaven out of their homes, but they hadn't put it out of their hearts. They hadn't put the attitudes out. And then Paul says, it kind of blows you away, therefore let us keep the feast. Let's observe these days, not with old leaven. Now, the old leaven you, know, you can go through the the wrong fruits of the spirit, your jealousy, vanity, things like that. He said, get rid of those things. Get rid of the old leaven, nor with the, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You know, begin doing things the right way. Take time during this period of time to get rid of those things. So we have a scripture, we have the section of scripture here. We could look at, at other ones. Let's just do it very quickly. In the book of Acts, beginning in verse 1, 
Yeah, what did the, old, the New Testament church do? What days did they keep? If we just read the scriptures, it becomes very obvious what they did. In Acts chapter 1, this is the discussion Christ had before he ascended into heaven. And he tells his disciples in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them, Do not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. I want you to stay in Jerusalem until you receive the Holy Spirit, is what he's talking about. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. You know, if the early New Testament churches said, well, we don't need to keep these days anymore. This is a Jewish thing. They wouldn't have received the Holy Spirit because they were with one accord in one place on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 17, first couple of verses, Paul was traveling, came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, then when Paul, as his custom was, this wasn't just a custom, it was his habit. This is what he did. The very same thing that Jesus Christ did every year in the Passover. As his custom was, he went into them three Sabbaths in a row and reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. In Acts chapter 18, just jumping through here quickly, <clears throat> Paul was traveling, uh, comes back to Antioch, down in verse 21. He wanted to take leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that is coming, or this coming feast in Jerusalem. Paul said, look, I've got to be in Jerusalem by the time the feast comes. Now, it's not labeled here exactly which one it was, but this was what was guiding Paul's calendar. This was uh, what was guiding his, uh, his schedule in that sense. In chapter 20, Paul has spent three months uh, in Greece, in Macedonia. Then verse 5 and 6, and basically in verse 6, is, but we sailed. Now, this is Luke's account of Paul's travels. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Now, is it just there? Or what is Luke saying is that, you know, after the days of unleavened bread, then we sailed. This was a marker. And you know, we talk about this. When, you know, after the feast this year, I'm going to be going so-and-so. Or coming here or there. We use these days as markers. So if we go through the New Testament, we find that the early New Testament church kept these holy days. They kept the Passover on the 14th. They kept the days of unleavened bread. I want to ask just the question, what happened to keeping these holy days? Why don't churches today keep these holy days if Jesus Christ did, if the apostles did, and it appears the early church did? Why don't we keep them today? You can look this up on the Internet. Look up quarto deciman. Quarto deciman. Quarto is four. Deciman is ten. It's, it's controversy about the 14th day of the month when the Passover was. Due to pressures that arose around Rome and by the bishops of Rome, they began encouraging people to keep Sunday instead of the Sabbath, to keep Easter instead of the Jewish Passover. But not everybody wanted to go along with that. 
If you look up uh, Quarto Deciman, what you're going to find is there was a controversy about 150 A.D., over 100 years after Jesus Christ was crucified, when Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, and John lived towards the end of the first century or died towards the end of the first century, the disciple that he trained by the name of Polycarp came to Rome. He said, we will not be keeping Easter. We will be keeping the Passover on the 14th day of the month as we were taught by John, who was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the Bishop of Rome said, well, since you've been trained by a disciple of John, you can go ahead and keep it. And they did. Asia Minor. Asia Minor followed the Passover. In 150 A.D., they were allowed to do it. In 190 A.D., Polycrates, the disciple of Polycarp, who was trained by John, came to Rome. He says, we are not keeping Easter. We are keeping the Passover on the 14th day of the month. And the bishop of Rome said, well, I understand. He said, you're out of here. You're excommunicated from the church because you will not go along with what we want to do. And Constantine comes along around 300, a little after 300 AD, throws the weight of the Roman Empire behind these things. You will all keep Sunday. You will all keep Easter. And anyone who continues to Judaize, keeping the Sabbath, and keeping this Passover thing will lose their property. They'll be persecuted. This is why churches today don't do these things. And what's interesting is when you look at British history, just very quickly, a fellow by the name of Bede, B-E-D-E, who lived in northern England and wrote a booklet, wrote a book, in the 600s is one of the few things that exist from that time. He talks about the Scottish bishops when they met the Roman Catholic bishops. Roman Catholic bishops came up from the southeast and they had a conference up uh, towards Whitby in that area, up near Newcastle. He said the Scottish bishops would have nothing to do with these Roman bishops. And it was a controversy over the date of Easter and Bede, who was a Catholic, influenced by Rome, he said the Scottish bishops followed an Eastern tradition that came out of Asia Minor, not out of Rome. And they wouldn't keep Easter. I mean, this is the historical record. Came across a very interesting book recently entitled When Scotland Was Jewish. When Scotland was Jewish, very interesting. Uh, and these people, I think, are, they may be Jews. But uh, in, in another book that they quote, it's entitled The Forgotten Monarchy of Scotland by Prince Michael Stewart, a book that was written in about 2000 A.D. Now, this is not us writing these things. Uh, this Prince Michael Stewart is a Scot, and he's writing about the Celtic Church. He says, the Celtic church retained several Jewish practices. 
which deliberately resisted conformation to Roman Catholicism. In other words, the Celtic Church would have nothing to do for quite a long time. He says from 906 uh, A.D. onward, the Last Supper ritual was celebrated only at Passover on the 14th by the Celtic Church in 900 A.D. Infant baptisms were not practiced in Scotland. 900 A.D. And no crucifix imagery or icons were used in Scotland. 900 A.D. Stuart also writes that the Old Testaments and New Testaments were weighted equally within the Celtic Church. Edward Gibbon says about the early church that they combined the laws of Moses with the teachings of Jesus Christ. They didn't throw out the laws of Moses. And in Stuart writes, he says, unlike their Catholic counterparts, the priests of the Celtic church were allowed to be married. They were allowed to be married, 900 A.D. Given that Jesus' own teachings formed the basis of the faith of the Celtic church, the mosaic structure from the Old Testament was duly incorporated into that church. Together with the celebration of the Sabbath and the Passover, followed by this church, 900 A.D., the Celtic church, while Easter was correctly held as the traditional feast day of the spring goddess Easter. <laughs> they knew where it came from in 900 A.D. He continues... Um, <clears throat> He also describes accurately the uh, merging of Constantine's brand of Christianity with pre-existing pagan cults in the Middle East. Now, again, quoting uh, the uh, Prince Michael Stewart, contrary to traditional belief, Emperor Constantine the Great did not embrace Christianity as the religion of Rome. He adapted Christianity to a new form that was actually related to the Syrian Sol Invectus cult of sun worship. Constantine redefined Jesus' birthday to comply with the sun festival on December 25th and substituted sacred, uh, the sacred Sabbath Saturday with Sunday. So this is what happened to the early church. We can follow the historical record from Asia Minor where the disciples of John held on to the truth. They would not go along with what happened with Roman Christianity. The churches in Scotland didn't go along with these things. They resisted. They held on. I remember talking with Robert Storier, one of our ministers over in Scotland. He said, you know, we didn't even use Christmas trees up here until the English brought them up. <laughs> said, we didn't do that stuff. This is, you know, these English monarchs that came from Germany brought the stuff over here. said, we didn't do those things. Again, all I'm asking or all I'm saying here is why do we do what we do? Why do we keep the Passover? Why do we keep the Days of Unleavened Bread? Because Jesus Christ did. The early church did. And it did for centuries. But it's not just doing it is what is important, is what we learn by when what we do these things. You know, these, uh, the authors of this book, The Feasts of the Lord, make the observation. They said the seven feasts typify 
the sequence, timing, and significance of major events of the Lord's redemptive career. In other words, these authors understand the Holy Days picture a major plan, a major purpose. Now they say, well, it just pictures what Jesus was going to do. Well, it's more than that. God has a plan and a purpose, a plan of salvation for the entire world that is pictured in these holy days. You know, the spring holy days, Passover, days of unleavened bread, picture the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins. The days of unleavened bread tell us we need to get rid of the things that don't belong in our lives. Get rid of the leaven. It's not just a one-day thing. If we spend seven days eating unleavened bread, feeding on Jesus Christ, asking the question in our mind, what would Jesus do if he was in my position? What would Jesus say if he was where I am? How would he deal with this issue? And if we spend time on those spiritual things and be reminded every time we eat a a cracker without any leavening in it. This is what I'm supposed to become like, not like that cracker. But getting rid of the leaven. And if we do that, and some people in the past have gotten up, well, do we have to eat unleavened bread every day or just when we eat? The Bible says eat unleavened bread seven days <laughs> because that's where our mind is supposed to be during this period of time. And not only once we get done with the seven days of unleavened bread, now we can sin. No. (laughs) No, we've been cleaned up. We want to continue with this attitude of being teachable and learning and so on. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 talks about the holy days being shadows of things to come. Shadows of things that are coming. You know, the, the first three holy days come in the spring and early summer. Picture historical events. They're memorials. Memorials of what God has already done. Christ came, gave his life as a sacrifice. Days of unleavened bread were to be putting leaven out of our homes. Pentecost was when God poured out the Holy Spirit and began the New Testament church. These things are historical. They're memorials. You know, how many times do you keep a memorial of your birthday? Every day? Once a week? Once a month? No, once a year. How many days of the year do we celebrate Thanksgiving? We should be thankful every day. (laughs) But it's an annual holy day. Same thing with the Passover. We do it once a year on the 14th because those are the instructions. There are shadows of things to come. The fall holy days, which which we get four holy days in basically a three-week period. Picture the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth. Satan is going to be bound. The kingdom of God is going to be set up by the Feast of Tabernacles. And then the last great day pictures something the world basically doesn't understand. That all those who have ever lived are going to be resurrected and given an opportunity to understand the truth. The world simply doesn't understand that truth. This is why we keep the holy days. When we stop keeping the holy days, we will forget the plan of God. 
And it's that simple. Many people don't believe Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, some people do. Many people believe they're going to heaven. The Bible says Christ is going to reign with the saints on this earth. See, the holy days are to keep us mindful of these things. What can we learn? What should we learn as we keep the Passover and as we keep the days of unleavened bread? Will we merely march through the routine? Well, I've done this 30 times. I've done this 40 times. I've done this twice. (laughs) What do we have to learn? What will you learn? What will I learn? Will you be any different after the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread this year? Turn to John 13. Notice something that Jesus instructed his disciples to do on the evening of the Passover. And this would be an interesting study that you could do on your own, spend a little bit more time with. In John 13, <clears throat> beginning verse 1, so here's the, the time period. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour would come, verse 2, after supper being ended, um, the uh, Satan came into Judas's mind. Verse 4, it says, Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, began to pour water in the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet. That was not, especially in Peter's mind, something that his Lord should do. Jesus, what are you doing? This is a job for servants. This is a job we pay people to do. This This is really... Base stuff. You're you're humbling yourself to do this. <laughs> don't do that to me. You, know, you read the account. You know, Jesus said, if I don't do this to you, you have no part of me. Peter got the message. He said, give me a bath. <laughs> Wash me totally. When he saw the picture. Verse 12, he said, when he had washed their feet, He took his garments, sat down again. He said, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher. You look up to me. And you call me Lord, boss, ruler. And you say, well, because I am. If then your Lord, if then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You need to do the same thing. You know, Jesus became a servant. You know, what does the word servant mean? You look it up. It means a slave. Paul talks about becoming a slave of Jesus Christ. Of following his instructions. It means to serve. It comes from a French word. Mr. Pardon will have to correct my French. But servir, I think it is. S-E-R-V-I-R. Servir which means to be worthy of reliance and trust. How can I serve you? How can I help you? What can I do for you? As opposed to let me tell you how to live your life. (laughs) Let me tell you what to do. 
know, how can I serve you? How can I help you? I think it mentions in, um, I believe it's, never get the scripture right now, but it talks about Paul says, yeah, they, I want to be helpers, be helpers of their joy. They don't put them down, but be helpers of their joy. I think it's Second Corinthians. We'll look at that in just a little bit. But this is what it means to serve, to be of assistance. You know, one of the the uh, comments made about John Kennedy when he died, now this was a speechwriter, but the phrase was good. They described Kennedy as they said, he saw a need and tried to fill it. Now, he, he, had his own, he, had his, he had his other problems. <laughs> but the phrase is worthwhile. He saw a need and tried to fill it. I think how many times in the past have people seen an office and they've tried to fill it. I want to be this. I want to be that. I remember when I went to Ambassador College years ago, this guy was studying diligently. And I said, oh, do you want to be a minister? Who, me? No. I said, why are you studying? Well, well, (laughs) he was there to learn, to be able to teach and to be able to help. But he, he denied why he was there. I think he was focused on maybe the position and not on serving. It's not wrong to want to serve. It's not wrong to want to help people understand the Bible. Sometimes we get the cart before the horse. But this is what serving is all about, how to help and how to be a benefit to others. You might do a little study. Jesus was called a servant in Isaiah, latter part of Isaiah 52. And some of the Bibles label that section the suffering servant. Jesus came back to serve God, to give his life for the sins of the world. That was his job. That was his mission. He was a servant. It's interesting, I think it's in Isaiah 49, about verse 3 or 4. The children of Israel are called the servants of God. You are my servant, Israel. I have called you to be a servant to mankind, an example to the world. Not to shove your religion down their throat, but to be a light and an example to the world. So that when they see you keeping my feasts, and I bless you for doing that, they're going to say, how do you get those blessings? And you say, we keep the feast. But it's not just the mechanics of keeping the feast, or keeping the holy days, or keeping Passover, or keeping unleavened bread, It's learning the lessons that God wants us to learn as we go through these days. What are we going to learn as we go through these days? Will we be the servant? Notice in uh, Matthew chapter 20, this theme runs through the scriptures. Jesus emphasizes it. Paul emphasizes it. In Matthew chapter 20, and this... It's very human. The mother of James and John come to Jesus. Jesus, my boys are your disciples. 
I've got two wonderful boys, <laughs> and they are serving you. They're helping you. And I just have a little favor to ask, and I'm just a woman, and I'm not very important. But could James and John have positions on your right hand and on your left hand? Thank you very much. I won't bother you anymore. <laughs> what happened when the other disciples heard what their mother had done? James, John, what are you guys doing? You got your mom in here. Working on Jesus. <laughs> they didn't like it. But they, they had their eyes on a position. They had their eyes on a position. Verse 24, it says, When the ten heard it, they were indignant. And then Jesus called them together, and he said unto them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, and this is not just Gentiles, Israelites do the same thing. They lord it over others. They, they like to be in a position. They like stripes on their shoulders. They like the accolations that come with these things. And those who are great exercise authority over them. They keep people under their thumb and they enjoy that. They enjoy the power. And yet Jesus said, it shall not be so among you. I don't want this in my kingdom or among my disciples. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Jesus came to be a servant. We have been called to become servants. You know, how can I help you? How can I help you? Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. You know, that's why we wash people's feet. And hopefully that's a lesson we can learn when we do that. Hopefully that's a lesson we can learn. I'm here to help. I'm here to serve. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life for many. You know, I've mentioned this before, examples I've seen over the years. I remember when I was just a member, going to church, the minister would come into the parking lot, and there'd be three or four or five men out there opening his door helping him out carrying his briefcase and he goes in to deliver the sermon and then here comes his wife with three or four kids diaper bag bottles nobody's helping her because she didn't have a position to give to anybody again if we can learn from these things you know, we have a history as an organization we have a history as people but if we can learn from these things. Because God has called us to become what? Kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. And if we repeat some of the mistakes that we've made over the years, when we are given positions of responsibility, then we haven't learned anything. And history is a waste of time. Jesus came to be served, excuse me, came to serve and not to be served. How do we eliminate leaven from our lives? How do we do this? You know, just putting leavening out of our homes might make us feel good because we got rid of the sin. But those are only the physical things. We've got to get rid of what's in here. If we're going to be different when we come out the other end of the Days of Unleavened Bread... 
What we feed on over the next several weeks and especially during the Days of Unleavened Bread may determine whether or not we change or how we change. We've got to be feeding on Jesus Christ, his teachings, his example. If you go through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, and think about these things, not how they relate to other people. I've got to think about how they relate to me. And you've got to think about how they relate to you. Jesus opened his mouth. This is the very beginning of his ministry. Verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The word blessed in the Greek means to be envied. To be envied, because they are going to be rewarded powerfully. To be envied are the poor in spirit. That means humble. That means teachable. I'm insignificant. You know, I went to a, an officer's training camp whenever I was, uh, I guess it was in high school, sponsored by the YMCA. They had an award that they put up on the platform at the beginning of camp. This was about a three or four day session. And they said, this is the highest award that we will give at camp this summer. It was a plaque that said, I'm third. I'm third. What do we do today? We win a basketball game. I'm number one. I'm number one. The camp awarded, I'm third. God's first. Others are second. And I'm third. They're not, par, they're not far off with those values. Jesus said, blessed are those that are poor in spirit, humble, insignificant. They don't wear their office on their sleeves. You know, we've all got to be alert to these things. Blessed are those who mourn, that are empathetic. They care. They care about people. They care about the words that they say. Because once the word is out there, you can't take it back. Blessed are the meek that are teachable, that are patient. They're willing to learn. They're willing to grow. But notice the promises here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones that are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. And brethren, if we don't comfort, God will. Because he's aware of how people are treated, how people may feel, what may happen. He knows. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, because they will obtain mercy. You know, if we are not merciful, we better watch out. Because God is a God of mercy. Now, I've had to learn that. You're probably having to learn that. We're all going to have to learn that. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, these are some things to think about as we go through the holy days. You know, am I humble in spirit? Do I hunger for the truth? Am I teachable? Am I merciful? Am I a peacemaker? 
these are things to think about. Matthew chapter 6, another thing to ponder, another concept. Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. In verse 9 of chapter 6, he says, pray after this manner. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, don't, we don't come before God. Oh, God. Hey, you. No. God, our Father in heaven, the creator of this earth, we're coming before your throne. And we come very humbly, humbly. We come very respectfully. Your kingdom come. I'm looking forward to your coming kingdom. And that your will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. You know, sometimes we think our will has to be done. No, it's God's will. I remember when I was applying to Ambassador College the first time uh, years ago. I was talking with uh, a gentleman who was representing the college. He said, well, are you going to come to Ambassador College? I said, well, my plan was, and I, I saw those words hang in the air. Because <laughs> he just smiled. My plan was to do it this way. He said, well, you know, God has his own plans that he will work out in his time and in his way. And we need to be praying that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread. In other words, God, we do have certain needs. But then he says in verse 12, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins as we forgive others who've done things wrong. And then Jesus amplifies this in verses 14 and 15. And he could have said, in case you don't get it, let me repeat myself. For if you forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive people their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. You know, we keep the Passover because we know we've sinned. We know we've gone contrary to God. We don't keep the Passover because, well, I'm perfect, now I can keep the Passover. And some people don't come to the Passover. Well, you know, I'm such a rotten person. I just don't deserve to be there. None of us deserve to be at the Passover. None of us. You know, we come because we realize we need a Savior. We need to be forgiven. And God says, I will forgive you. You know, we've got to be careful sometimes. <clears throat> you know, how we use our authority. When I first began to pastor, a guy showed up at Passover. He was a member of the church. But he hadn't been attending for, I don't know, maybe a year or so. I saw him come in and I stopped him at the door and I said, why are you here? He said, it's the Passover. I said, you probably don't belong here because you didn't counsel with me. He just looked at me in disbelief and walked out the door. You know, I think God may have been working in his life and I got in the way. I think it would be much better if I would have just let him take the Passover and then let God work with him 
as opposed to me jumping in the middle of that. I mean, these are lessons that I've learned over the years. And we all have lessons to learn this way. But review Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 7, quickly. Now, this is fundamental Christianity. This is what Jesus emphasized to his disciples. You know, do we match up or the things that we need to adjust? Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Think about that. How many times have you said, I just don't understand how a person who's been in the church could do this. Or I don't understand how a person that knows the truth could say that. Have you ever thought that way? I have. And you know what the answer to the dilemma is? It was in those first two words or three words. I don't understand. You know, if you have never stolen, if you've never committed adultery, if you've never committed fornication, if you've never lied, if you've never taken God's name in vain, you may not understand where some people came from. And we're going to have people coming into the church They've done all sorts of things. And we need to understand. We need to understand. You know, a person that has wrestled with smoking, I don't understand how you could ever smoke. That stinks. Well, if they developed a a habit that's a very complex habit, you're using your fingers, you have to learn how to breathe smoke so you don't choke. (laughs) This is a challenge. (laughs) And once you get this stuff in your system, there's a craving that develops. I talked with a realtor one time. She was driving me around trying to sell me a house. She was a health teacher. And she said, do you mind if I smoke? I said, yeah, I kind of do. But I'm wondering, you're a health teacher. Why do you do it? She says, I don't know. I've taken two or three stop smoking classes, but I just like the smell of it. Because there's, it's, a, it's a behavior. There are things that happen to your body. Now, some people are able to stop. My dad smoked for a while. I think he came home, forgot his cigarettes, and that was the end of it. He said, I spent too much money on that. He stopped. Other people I've talked to that have been baptized, they want to do this, want to do that, and they, they find it a real struggle to be able to do that. And for me to tell them, I don't understand what's going on with you. I literally don't. <laughs> because I was not in their shoes. I was not in their shoes. You know, one of the, the questions that I wanted to ask here in the sermon was, why do we have trials just before the Passover? We've been called to become kings and priests, to work with people in the coming kingdom of God. You know, unless we walk in their shoes a little bit, to realize where people are coming from. We're not going to be able to empathize. We're not going to be able to listen with understanding. It's going to be, well, I don't understand where you're coming from. God is preparing us. Go through the scripture. It talks about you are the work of my hands. 
You are my workmanship. God is the potter and we are the clay. He's preparing us for a role. And he may look down and say, you know, there's a couple of things you don't understand. (laughs) And I'm going to allow you to have more understanding (laughs) by giving you the opportunity. How have you felt when you were judged unjustly? How did you feel? Think about it. How did you feel when you were not shown any mercy? How did you feel? If somebody lied about you, how did you feel? Somebody stole your wallet. How did you feel? Somebody broke into your home. How did you feel? Anybody have anybody break into their homes? How did you feel? You know, it's devastating. And God is going to give us opportunities. And these are not fun. <laughs> They're not fun. You know, in 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about, let's look at that quickly. <clears throat> God is the one that is working in our lives. And it's good. It's good to know that. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, essentially, to bear. But with the temptation will make a way of escape. God is in charge. God will work things out because God is a God of love. You know, it's interesting. Because we're part of a church that has had somewhat of an Old Testament perspective, which is not bad, it's not wrong. Because I've had that perspective. And we read where Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen, if you love me, keep my commandments. David said, Oh, how I love your law. Now, these are extremely important concepts. But you know, if you read John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 4, he says, God is love. He uses the word about a dozen times. This was John, who was one of the sons of thunder. Jesus, they're doing some stuff wrong over there. We want some lightning right now. Burn them. They'll get the point. John is writing 1 John 3, 1 John 4. He's talking about love. He's talking about mercy. He talks about gentleness. He talks about kindness. These are concepts. We need to understand the laws of God. And we need to understand how to apply those laws of God. Is this important? Think about it. Is this important? Notice what James said. James 2, verse 13, he said, For judgment is without, excuse me, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
You know, we, we've got to be careful. We've got to learn how to deal with people, to deal with people in love. I shared the lesson I learned. Told this guy coming back to the Passover, he was coming back. And I said, why are you here? He said, it's the Passover. It's the Passover. And he was moving in a direction. And I got in the middle, I think. And there's some other things you might want to read. Ezekiel 34 talks about shepherds of Israel. Now, we're all hoping to become shepherds. It says, if you deal harshly with people, you're going to drive your flock away. We've got to be careful with those things. I think we've got a lot of people in the woodwork today that have been hurt. They've been hurt. I remember talking with a gentleman in a church area one time. I said, uh, why don't you come to Spokesman's Club? He said, I'll never come back to Spokesman's Club. He said, I was humiliated the first or second time I came. He said, I'll never go back. You know, that's a tragedy. You know, we should be teaching people how to love. You know, parents are told, what is it, Ephesians uh, 6, Parents, don't be too hard on your kids because they'll get frustrated. I think I've used this example before. One of our boys sassed his mother, and I grabbed him, and I shook him. I said, you should never talk to your mother like that. I saw this, this expression of terror on his face. I thought, I never want to see an expression like that on my child's face again. Never. And I apologized to him. I said, look, I've never been a parent before. And you've never been a kid before. <laughs> I said, you give me a break, and I'll give you a break. <laughs> you know, we learn through these experiences. We have a very good relationship now. But I had to learn to be a parent. I wasn't born knowing how to be a parent. As we go through the days of unleavened bread, keep these things in mind, brethren. God has called us. God has called us to become kings and priests, to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God, to administer the government of God with love, with concern, with consistency, with understanding. Now, you might ask yourself the question <clears throat> when it's, this thing comes to mind, well, I don't understand. Put yourself in the position of the first century church. Read through Acts chapter 9. The Apostle Paul says he was screaming out thunderings and lightnings, throwing people in jail. He stood by apparently condoning the stoning of Stephen. God began to work with Paul. He struck him down, let him cool his heels for three days. And what happened after that? He was preaching. What do you think the people in the audience thought? Who is this guy? 
is he? <laughs> the guy that I heard of? I don't understand what God's doing here. And that was what happened. They didn't understand what God was doing. And what is God doing with us? What is he going to do with you through the days of unleavened bread and the Passover? What will you change? How will you change as you go through the days of unleavened bread this year? What will you learn? And what will I learn? How can God mold and fashion us? He's the potter, we're the clay. If we give him the opportunity to work with us, then God's going to be able to use us, mold us, and fashion us if we're feeding on Jesus Christ and if we want to do things his way. You know, hopefully, brethren, the day of the Passover and the days of unleavened bread will be a very profitable experience for each and every one of us if we let God work with us. And our desire is to do things God's way.